Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We're so excited about Marianne's guest this week. Jan Dutkiewicz is a fellow at Harvard Law School and is a political economist who focuses on meat, including both animal-derived meat and alternative proteins. He has so much to say about the politics of food and animals and the environment, as well as where we are headed. I, I hope it's I hope we're headed somewhere better than where we are now, Marianne. Yeah, I think he thinks that we are. I I do. And he's a pretty cool guy and he definitely cares a lot about animals. So that's what counts in my book. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Jan. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves. And we speak to some inspiring guests, most of whom are recent podcast guests. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and also don't forget, if you are in the Flock, you can also set up a one-on-one to meet with me to talk about your change-making and your veganism and your activism. Email Jen to figure that out at jen at ourhenhouse.org and she'll send you my calendar link. Maybe I will do that. Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. So we do have something to to celebrate right now, which is something that's been a long time in the making, and it is regarding the wonderful Miyoko Shinner and Miyoko's Creamery is in the news. You want to talk about it? Yeah, and this is actually a case that we had covered a while back on the Animal Law Podcast, and the decision that has now come down, the Northern District of California in federal court is in, totally in favor of, of Miyoko. And the whole case is about what she's allowed to put in her packaging on her butter. It's specifically about her butter. And California, or specifically the California Department of Food and Agriculture, had somehow decided in their, in their infinite wisdom that the fact that she used butter and dairy on her vegan butter products was outrageous and against the law, and they had to sue her. Let me be clear, as always, the word vegan was on there very prominently and there was no deception or anything like that. It was just basically they thought they owned these words. And so um, ALDF filed a, a lawsuit on behalf of Miyoko and she was complaining about the fact that they were telling her to remove these these terms from her packaging she was actually just completely successful. And this is a real victory. It's so different from a lot of what's happening in Europe, actually. I usually think of Europe as being more progressive than than we are in so many ways. But on this thing about the right to use language and your First Amendment rights to use the language, honestly, and, and in the way you, you wish to, is stronger in the U.S., I think. And basically, I mean, this is totally a paraphrase, but basically what the court held is that you know, language changes. The government doesn't own the language. If people are using butter in a different way, the, the government can't stop that any more than it could stop you using from other language in a different way. Uh, it's pretty cool. I really like this decision. I really hope things continue in this way. Yeah, I love it. I'm so excited for Miyoko and I'm so excited for all of us. This is such a precedent-setting lawsuit. So 
precedent Hooray. setting. And if she had had to change her packaging, mm-hmm. well, you're a big national company the way she is now. You can't just change your packaging for one state. Like it doesn't work like that. You would at least have to change it for one region because distribution is done on a regional scale. And that would cost a fortune. And she just toughed it out. I mean, she she really refused to she refused to bow to these kinds of ideas when she created her packaging. They also mm-hmm. had originally complained about the fact that, that there was a picture of her hugging a cow on the on the front of the package. They did eventually drop that claim. But apparently they thought that was like, <laughs> what the hell is that a violation of? That you can't have a picture of hugging a cow. You can't act like, and you know, also the fact that she was calling it cruelty-free. Well, it is. This doesn't seem that remarkable that you should be, at least allowed to tell the truth on your packaging. They should be required to tell the truth on their packaging. And the the other kinds of butter should be required to put cruelty-free on their packaging. That's the Marianne Sullivan version of the law. Yeah, I, I like the Marianne Sullivan version of the law. And I recently interviewed Miyoko for Veg News Magazine, and obviously this decision hadn't been made yet, but I just really admired Miyoko's activist spirit and the fact that she's just been doing it in so many different ways for so long. And at the end of the day, it is absolutely about the animals for her. And that makes me think of a workshop we led last week for Main Street Vegan Academy, which we have been privileged to be able to present at for several years now. It's run by Victoria Moran, of course, and it used to be in person. And like everything else, it's virtual these days. And we had one the other day And something that is slightly different from the other times that we've led this workshop is I said at the beginning what the takeaways would be for the people attending. And I revisited them throughout the workshop just to make sure that everyone, including us, was very clear on the three specific takeaways. And I just wanted to say what they are because I wrote about it last week as well in my Substack newsletter, which you can find at jasminesinger.substack.com. No E on Jasmine. But the three takeaways are the importance of individual action, familiarize yourself with basic animal rights and animal law, but don't feel you have to be an expert at it or know all the answers to speak up, and create a vision of how a vegan world would look, even if it seems unlikely. You have to know where you're going if you're ever going to get there. So I took these three concepts and I wrote about it in my newsletter last week regardless of whether your activism of choice is animal rights activism, which if you're listening to this, it probably is, but it's also relevant across the board for all different types of activism and change making in any regard. So understanding the importance of individual action, I think is basically the basis of what our headhouse is, which is even though activism can feel lonely and it's difficult to wrap our heads around how our little, our little actions can make a difference the opposite of that is just living a complacent, shitty life. <laughs> I mean, to put it frankly. I see a lot of discussion on Twitter of late, especially amongst envir- people who are concerned, who are legitimately concerned about the environmental implications of animal agriculture. And there's a lot of discussion of whether you have to go vegan. And there's a lot of opinions that you don't. Like, this is a systemic problem. You going vegan is not going to accomplish anything. Like we have to change the way the world works. And of course that's true. We, you know, it's a systemic problem, but the fact, the idea that your individual actions have nothing to do with your advocacy seems to me bizarre. If you can't even talk yourself into going vegan, like how are you, how are you going to talk anybody else into even cutting down on their animal products, much less going vegan? Like 
actions matter. It's not mm-hmm. just words. Actions matter. And when you're vegan, that has much more of an impact on other people. And the words you use have much more of an impact on other people if you're willing to use them. I think it's a crazy idea. And it just shows how, how far people will go to avoid not chomping down on, on animal flesh. Like, right. did I say that right or was that a double negative? I don't know. But you know what I mean? People are nuts. Of course you have to go vegan yourself in order to advocate for the environment or mm-hmm. for obviously for animals. I mean, it's obvious when... I, I would think it would be obvious, but maybe it isn't. I don't know. It doesn't seem, nothing seems obvious to anybody anymore. Right. No, I mean, I I agree. And I think probably most people listening to this also agree, but it is worth sort of normalizing the fact that sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. Like sometimes we just sort of look at the world and and it feels how, like, how are we going to get from here to there? And that's sort of where that third point I made came in. I skipped to the second, but I'll go back to that which is to create a vision of what the world you want looks like and live it. So we can sort of ignore the in-between benchmarks. You know, if you're just sort of helping someone in the grocery store find the tempeh because you want a vegan world, you don't in that moment have to think about the fact that like we have this great monstrosity of animal agriculture to shut down while you're helping this person find the tempe, you're actually doing something great. And and that should be counted. It should, small victories should be counted, you know, along the way, whether it is that person like trying something new or it's your neighbor getting an electric car because they heard you talking about it or, you know, whatever it is, we can allow ourselves to enjoy the impact we're making, however small. So the, the, final thing is to not feel you have to be an expert to speak up. And I, I think this is something a lot of our henhouse listeners could take to heart because if you're listening to this, you probably care a lot about animal advocacy. So do I, and you don't know everything and neither do I, and that's okay. It, it, it it makes me think of a person who I knew at some point who was just newly vegan and was talking to someone about wool. And they knew that they knew that wool was a problem, but they didn't really know why. They didn't have the specific talking points, but they were like, I know it's bad. It doesn't work with my worldview. It's just bad. I can't tell you why right now, but it's just bad. And I always thought like that's such a great, you know, moment to point to as like success because we don't need to be afraid to say something for fear of being called on it to say everything. And the chances are we won't be. And if you are, you could be be honest. I don't know. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. It's always important to remember too, that the person interrogating you, like the person saying, well, why shouldn't I wear wool? What's the matter with it? Probably knows absolutely nothing about wool production. Like aren't, they're the ones who are choosing to support it with their dollars. Aren't they the ones who should know? But no, they expect us to know everything. And then they, and then they argue with us, whether it's really true, even though they know nothing. It, people drive me nuts. <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing to keep in mind is that even as you're talking to that person who's being combative about the wool sweater, there could be someone nearby listening and maybe they'll take it in and it'll make them think differently. That is the fact that, you know, that points to the fact that social change still happens person to person and by example. And I find that emboldening, especially when I'm really low and down and out. I feel like I am reminded of what I do have control over which is my how I show up at, in my advocacy. And I actually not only opt in to, to hope, 
but I opt into faith. And I don't mean faith in humankind and I don't mean faith in God. I mean faith in the unfolding of processes. I, I mean faith in in doing what's right. So if I'm helping someone at the grocery store to find the vegan meat section, I'm doing so kind of having faith that like they're going to go vegan. And if they don't, someone in their life is because they'll be exposed to it, to people removed. And that faith and that hope is why I keep going. So another person who helps me to keep going is the incredible insight that we're going to get from our interviewee today. I have always given hope and new direction by our guests, and today is no exception. Jan Dutkiewicz is a policy fellow at the Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School and a Swiss National Science Foundation Synergia postdoctoral fellow at Concordia University. His research focuses on the political economy of meat, including both animal-derived meat and alternative proteins, and he's finishing a book about industrialized meat production in the United States. He has written about the politics of food and animals and the environment for a range of academic journals and for publications, including Wired, The Washington Post, The Guardian, The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, Descent, and Jacobin. And Jan will be joining Marianne right after this. Jasmine here. We're so excited to announce the upcoming release of the groundbreaking new book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, published by Lantern Books and Media. Inspired by Encompass's racial equity trainings, this collection of essays was written by farmed animal protection leaders, myself included, who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more effective and just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. I'm lucky enough to be the editor of the book. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to prioritize anti-racism within our advocacy. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is new as of September 2021 and is a collaboration between Our Hen House, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Lantern Books and Media. And we've got even more exciting news. Our Hen House is honored to roll out an audio series of the book, launching this October 2021. Narrated by the essay authors themselves, the four-part series will air every Thursday throughout October. This will be in addition to our regular podcast schedule, of course. We cannot wait to share it with you. To find out more about the book and to pre-order it, visit encompassmovement.org book. That's encompassmovement.org book. Welcome to our hen house, Jan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I follow you on Twitter and I read every, uh, I'm fascinated by everything you put up there. So it's really exciting to get to talk to you in person. And the first thing I'm going to ask you, when we introduced you, we said you were a political economist. Can you just explain what that is? So in simplest terms, 
what a political economist is, is someone who pays attention to broadly the ethical, political, legal, social, and in my case, environmental dimensions of economic activity. So I'm really interested in how goods are produced, who produces them, what impact those goods have, how they get to the consumer, how consumers engage with them. So all this stuff that sort of goes with the production and consumption of commodities. And then obviously I happen to focus on food and specifically on meat. Yeah, I can't think of anything we need more now that you've explained what it is. So, you know, I I usually kind of end people's interviews. I've been asking everybody these questions and I usually end with them, but I'm going to start here with you because, you know, we all know that there are a gazillion reasons to reduce. There are actually a gazillion reasons to eliminate consumption of meat. And and we're going to get into all of those and your views on them. But it still seems to be a political no-go zone. And and of course, that is because for like people are just still horrified by the idea. Just never mind why people don't go vegan. Why is this such a difficult issue that that it's even hard for politicians to broach it? Well, I think that uh, the question of meat reduction, as you said, there are a number of cases, there are ethical cases, there's a very strong environmental case. Now, in the wake of COVID, there's a very strong case that has to do with preventing the risk of future zoonotic pandemics. But basically, the question of meat reduction, despite having such a strong case for it, runs into two problems. The first is the sort of cultural and political role of meat Uh, in our society, and as that relates to politicians. And second is the question of individual choice and the fact that uh, individual choice and individual consumer choice is viewed as so important by so many people. And so when you talk about meat reduction, even though the the rational case for it, if you will, seems so obvious, you run into this dual problem that a lot of people, and of course, if any vegan has tried to convince a meat eater to go vegan, they run into all these justifications for why people can't go vegan or don't want to go vegan and so on and so forth. But you also run into this political problem where there are very few politicians who are willing to stick their neck out for something they perceive as so politically unpopular, right? So it's very easy for politicians to score points saying, you know, how dare anyone suggest that you reduce your meat consumption, you have a right to make whatever choices you want in the market, how dare anyone tell you what to eat, this is government overreach, and they're literally taking the meat out of your mouths. And given that for a lot of politicians, and this is not just conservative politicians, but it seems to be becoming a conservative political talking point, both in the United States and in other countries, it's very easy for conservative politicians to rile people up with this sort of culture war idea of combining meat reduction with political correctness, with sort of eco-consciousness gone too far. And so therefore to say that there's absolutely no way they're supporting meat reduction because it's everything that's sort of wrong with the woke environmental left or however you want to phrase that. And I think a really good example of this is what just happened in Spain. So um, the Spanish Minister of Consumer Affairs, Garzón, he basically put up this video on Twitter that I really urge people to watch, which is, it's really a masterclass in political communication. He walks people through all the peer-reviewed science of why meat should be reduced. He talks about meat reduction and not elimination. He says you can still have your barbecue with your family, just have less of them. He talks about the fact that a lot of people can't access meat because of income and access issues. He talks through all the policies that the government can can implement. It's really like a masterclass. This is how we should be talking politically about meat reduction. 
and his other politicians and policymakers, the very people who should be implementing these policies, rather than supporting him or rather than even engaging with any of his empirical claims, all of which are based in uh, peer-reviewed science, they just started doing this really juvenile trolling. So the prime minister of Spain comes out and he says his favorite food is a steak. You have opposition politicians literally tweeting pictures of grills stacked with steaks, saying things like to your health or long live steaks. And But this is scoring them political points. This is making them sort of culture warriors fighting for individual choice and for traditional culture and so on and so forth. And I, so I think this is a microcosm of what happens in these cases and why it's so hard at the policy level and for politicians to engage with it because it's really dangerous politically. It's dangerous to their political reputation and their political future. I, I have so much sympathy with them and I'm sure everybody listening does too. Having, like even when your job doesn't depend on getting elected people, just talking to people about why they shouldn't be eating meat is you just run into that, exactly that kind of juvenile, obstinate behavior unreasoning behavior. I wish it was just in Spain, but it definitely is not. I mean, of course, the the main reason politicians are trying to focus on meat reduction, at least they are in some places, is because of climate. When we talk about it, we're usually talking about animals or about the whole gamut of issues. But climate really has kind it seems like it's actually rising to be a point of attention now that the world is falling apart. And that attitudes are shifting as the weather disasters mount. I read a statistic recently that it was it was rated second among all concerns for American voters, which just like, that's unbelievable. So do you see any promise that the arguments about the connections between animal agriculture and climate are shifting? Or is that still just the, the one source of greenhouse gases that we just don't talk about? That's a very good question. And I think it, it really depends on what day you ask me, because on the one hand, I'm very heartened that in public opinion, environmental issues and especially climate change have finally started to be recognized as as important as they actually are. And so that really heartens me. And I think that if you look at the way that plant-based diets or veganism are increasingly discussed, I mean, just anecdotally or online or in, or in the press, you're increasingly starting to see the link between food production and especially livestock production and climate. So I think that's a really positive development. What I see as less positive is the fact that because agriculture and especially livestock agriculture contributes relatively less emissions than fossil fuels. So if you look at the conservative FAO figure, it's uh, 14%, the sort of 14.5% of uh, emissions figure of which 6% globally is beef. That's a relatively small part of the climate puzzle. And so, and I've written about this, there's been a sort of reticence among climate scientists and climate scholars and climate activists to really talk about food and especially to talk about meat. And I think it's for the same reason a lot of politicians are scared to talk about it. Because if you want your message to be sort of broadly appealing and to get people on board with fighting climate change, you might not want to alienate people by saying, well, this is going to require you to go vegan or reduce your meat consumption. And so a lot of prominent climate scholars and activists have really either shied away from it or in the case of people like Michael Mann, who otherwise is an extremely important and smart climate communicator, they've even critiqued meat reduction and veganism, right? Michael Mann has called veganism empty virtue signaling. And I think that these narratives have done quite a bit of harm because people... If people already care about climate, then people should be able to make the link between climate and food production and with meat specifically. 
And I think this is a broader point, be it in these conversations, in these political conversations, if meat is going to be a sort of fight in the culture war, it's going to have to be had eventually. Eventually, you have to deal with the elephant in the room. So I see no point in not having those conversations and not having those fights now because they have to happen eventually. And why not do it now in the middle of very visible climate change, in the middle of a zoonotic pandemic? This seems like the ideal time to really make those links and really bring those links to the forefront of the climate and environmental and public health conversations. Yeah, it seems like one of the reasons is that very thing that you said, that it's 14%. And so they can kind of give themselves the excuse if they're not talking about it, that it you know it's just so much less important than the other things. But on the other hand, everyone seems to have different numbers about how much of a contributor animal agriculture is. How strong are you on that 14%? I mean, the indus- I, I read industry publications all the time, and they're sticking to, I think, 2%. And, you know, there are a lot of people in the animal uh, world who, who have much higher figures. So are those numbers real yet? I don't, I don't really know uh, how to adjudicate yeah. <laughs> what's quote-unquote real in this case. But uh, I think the FAO numbers are a valid conservative estimate. The way people engage with those those numbers differs. So for instance, uh, let's take a look at the figure for beef. So based on the FAO numbers, beef contributes, uh, so cows, of course, uh, I'm sure the listeners know, cows are ruminants. They have multiple stomachs. As they digest food, they emit methane, which they emit uh, primarily through belches, also a little bit through farts, which is more funny, but they are primarily the belches. And so that contributes about 6%, if not more, of climate heating uh, gases, primarily in the form of methane. So now what a lot of ranchers, for instance, in the United States will come out and say is they will say that as a relative part of total U.S. emissions, that number is lower. So they'll say beef actually only emits between 2 and 3% of total U.S. emissions. But that doesn't mean that American cows emit less methane or less greenhouse gases. It just means that the United States as a country emits so many greenhouse gases that the livestock emissions are relatively speaking a smaller part of that pie. And so this is an example of how these numbers get played with and deployed. And I mean, and simultaneously, I've seen some really outlandish claims from from people who are championing animals' interests and are championing meat reduction. And I think they're doing it in good faith, but there are a lot of really outlandish numbers. You know, I've seen claims of livestock specifically contributing 33% of gases or even higher. And I think that those numbers are not necessarily reliable. So I use the the conservative FAO numbers just because I think it's it's a large enough number to warrant attention. And I think that those are unimpeachable numbers, although the, the quote unquote real number is quite, quite likely higher, especially if you take account, um, land use change factors. That's the thing. Like it, it, it's not just a matter of counting. It's a matter of what you're counting and how many elements. And then, I mean, there's always the fact too, that if we weren't eating meat, we would have to grow more food and, you know, that would have its own implications. And we'd still have to ship that. Anyway, it gets complicated. But the thing that really troubles me is the climate case for not eating chickens. How strong is that? And does that mean that chickens are going to continue to be the most abused animal on the planet? Right. So, I'd like to start this answer by saying I'm not sure how many people, I mean, I'm not sure if we can actually, if we could actually say how many people are are eating more chicken as opposed to beef for climate reasons. I think that's an empirical question that needs to be studied. But of course, 
Uh, there's this really unfortunate argument that you're that you're pointing to that's floating around, which is that if beef is so highly impactful, uh, beef requires so much land and so much feed and contributes so much to climate change, why not eat a quote-unquote lower-impact meat? And most people point to chicken. Chicken is by far the most, I hesitate to use this word, but it's the most efficient meat. It's the most efficient animal to produce for meat. Uh, you can raise them on factory farms. They grow really quickly. They yield quite a bit of protein. And so the argument is, why not eat chickens? And I think that that argument is, if you're focused strictly on climate change, that argument actually sort of perversely makes sense internally in terms of reducing emissions. But of course, its ethical implications are quite horrible because chickens suffer in horrible conditions on factory farms. The vast majority of chickens raised in the United States are raised on factory farms. The United States kills 9 billion chickens every year, most of whom live short, miserable lives. And I think that's why when we're talking about meat reduction or meat elimination, we need to have a, a broader conversation that takes climate seriously, but goes beyond climate to, uh, of course, to environmental issues, to labor issues, but also to animal ethics issues. I think we can never decenter animal ethics because there's the case of chicken shows clearly that if we produce more chicken so that we can eat less beef, we're actually causing far more harm to far more individuals. And so I go out of my way to critique that point. That's where I would stand on that. I, I think that probably most people listening and I myself, you know, would agree that anytime we really try to come up with another rationale for not eating meat, it's never complete. And it always leaves somebody out. And frequently, I mean, even with the health argument, chickens have gotten left out so so much. So yeah, I don't think we can ever leave it aside, no matter how hard it is to bring it. We talked about politicians not attending to this issue and, you know, because people are so emotional about it. Do you think that's the reason the media does such a terrible job of covering animal agriculture's contribution to climate? Is it just because they're afraid of their audience or is it because they all eat meat so they have the same like cognitive dissonance that everyone else does? In, with questions like this, I always hesitate to impute a reason why people don't do things. Um, yeah, I, I should keep in mind that you're you're not here as a psychologist. You're, you are here as a right, political right. economist. No, I mean, so that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so I think, I think we know, we know why it is that some politicians play the culture war card. The media question, I think, is is more nuanced. I think a lot of people who work in the media, especially editors who make editorial decisions, they're just people. If those editors happen to happen to eat meat or happen to not take the climate case for meat very seriously personally, they're, of course, less likely to commission stories like this. I also think that, although this is changing, and I'll get to this in a second, I think that the, the media is reticent to engage with, to alienate its readership, right? So I think, but again, I think this is changing. I think increasingly you're seeing stories in major outlets about, be it about animal cruelty, be it about the links between mediating and climate, be it about alternative proteins. So, you know, the New York Times now has Ezra Klein as a staff writer, and I think he's been really championing the animal question and the alternative protein question in the pages there. I've been writing a lot for I've been writing a lot for Wired and the New Republic, and they seem very open to to having serious conversations about this. And so I, I want to be cautiously optimistic that treatment of animals and meat reduction is changing in the media, in the mainstream media, because I think foodie media and food media has a long way to go. 
And I think there's a lot of resistance in in that corner of the food media world. That makes total sense. I'm heartened by your because you're you're certainly closer since you do publish a lot of articles to to attitudes than I am. And I'm heartened by you saying that. I hope it's true. I do seem to think, and you've you've certainly commented on this, that when we when they do talk about climate and, and animal agriculture, frequently the story is about some fix, like feeding cow seaweed or capturing the methane and then using it. Like, do any of is there any possible fix? Is this all complete nonsense? So um I think the best the best part of this for me to talk about, which is the one I know about and I've written about and I've published about, is uh, using seaweed as a feed additive to reduce cows' methane emissions. So I'll talk about the study first, and then I'll talk about the reception and how it was promoted by the media and why I think that's wrong. So basically, there's a study done by scientists. It's good research. It's solid research. I don't want to impute any sort of ill intention to the scientists. Uh, basically, they found that if you feed a certain red seaweed, or if you use a tiny bit of that seaweed and mix it in with processed feed, the cattle's methane emissions can be reduced. And they can be reduced by, on a feedlot, in that experiment, as much as 80%. And so this is the finding of the study. And so this sort of, the study sort of takes on a life of its own. There's coverage everywhere from, you know, there's coverage in The Guardian, there's coverage in Wired, there's coverage in The Washington Post saying, we can fix the sort of cow climate problem. So we don't have to give up our hamburgers. We just have to feed all these cows seaweed. And this becomes, this is reported on very uncritically. All these outlets are basically like running the press release from the scientists who did this research. There was some of this research was done at UC Davis. Some of it was done at uh, Ciro in Australia. And then this becomes this taken for granted thing that sort of runs up the food communication value chain. So you have John Kerry, who's the US climate envoy. He's talking about, oh, we have all this technology that we can use to reduce cows methane. And this is an extremely dangerous narrative. For one, because these experimental findings have to be treated on their own terms, which is, sure, on a feedlot, you can reduce methane by up to maximum 80% if you use this seaweed. Sure, but the average cow doesn't actually spend its entire life on a feedlot. Most cows graze for between a year and a year and a half, and then they're fattened on a feedlot before they're slaughtered. And it's when they're grazing, that they're eating roughage and digesting all this difficult to digest stuff. And that's when they're emitting most of their methane. So if you look at just the life cycle of a cow, you're now reducing 80% of emissions, but you're doing it during the three or four months when cows already emit less emissions. So the real number is maybe like 10% of emissions over a cow's life. And then this was, this was done in experimental settings. There are 1 billion cows in the world. How are you going to grow enough seaweed and incorporate into the diet of enough cows globally for this to have any effect, any real effect? And so these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. I don't think any of that is economically or logistically feasible. But to read the reports and to read the way the media covered it, it was as if the problem was completely solved. And I think what this has to do with is a real desire on the one hand for people to not talk seriously about meat reduction or meat elimination, for one. And for two, a real sort of obsession, especially in the media, with quick technological fixes to entrenched problems that are difficult to overcome. And so I think the, the seaweed problem really is exemplary of the media wanting to put a positive spin and sort of pretend that we can tech our way 
out of the, the sort of meat climate problem. And if your listeners are interested, Matthew Hayek, who's a professor at NYU, and I wrote a sort of long analysis of this issue for, for Wired. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that makes total sense. And I think the climate is the issue that, you know, is just <laughs> nobody seems to be facing the fact that not just on this issue, but that we don't have the quick fix. We're, we're in trouble and people are starting to notice that. Of course, the, the topic that you talk about the most I think, is the solution, which, whether it is a solution or not, that's cultivated meat or cell-based meat, I'm not sure which you call it, all alternative meats. I mean, you talk, you've written quite a bit about this, and, and that's compl- particularly valuable because most of what we hear about it is from, you know, the people who are, who are producing it. So you have a, a, a more outside view. Recently, Pat Brown of Impossible Foods said, cultivated meat is complete vaporware. Don't hold your breath. He is, of course, the maker of plant-based meats. But you seem pretty enthusiastic about cell-based. And, you know, this is another one of those issues that that when you're outside it, you just have no idea. It's like the climate numbers. When you're outside them, it's like, well, you know, this person says this. And, you know, the, the producers have been saying for a while now that they are two years away from market. A lot longer than two years, anyway. So, so I want your point of view on this. How far along are we and how far is it going to go? And is this going to be huge? So that's a really big question, but I'm going to backtrack a little bit, which is to say that I I write a lot about and I have a lot of faith in and I'm quite uh, quite bullish on alternative proteins in general. So I have nothing against uh, alternative proteins. I have nothing against Impossible Food or Pat Brown for that matter. I'm a huge fan of tofurkey, but I'm also a huge fan of tofu, seitan. If yeah. I implied that, I, I certainly didn't mean to. Yes, I, I have, I've gotten the feeling that you're enthusiastic about all of it, but you are real. You have a lot of hope in cell base, which not everybody does. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. No, no, that's totally fine. No, the reason I'm saying this, though, is because because I've just said that people have hopes in sort of quick techno fixes. And what I want to say is that I don't think all of all protein in and of itself, is an easy fix to the meat issue. And I certainly don't think cellular agriculture is. What I do think is that alternative proteins as a whole, including plant-based and cell-based, which I'll talk about in a sec, what they do is they offer consumers, and I would hope, and of course, the hope, the hope of people like Pat Brown is that they offer consumers who currently eat meat an easier choice to eat a less impactful product that doesn't include animals. So in economic terms, it reduces switching costs for consumers. And so I think that the proliferation of all protein and people improving them and making them as close to meat as possible, marketing them to meat eaters, doing plant-based cheese, doing sort of the proliferation of plant-based dairy, the amazing popularity of oat milk. I think all of this is extremely positive in helping speed along the shift away from an animal-based food system. So cellular agriculture I don't think I'm bullish on it in the short term. I don't think we're all of a sudden all going to be eating cell-based meats. But what I do think about cellular agriculture and why I think it's a, it'll be sort of a good tool when it eventually comes to fruition, it'll be a good tool in the, in the tool belt of those people working towards meat reduction or meat elimination is because it virtually eliminates switching costs for consumers. It is meat. So if people can get over the fact that it comes from base cells rather than from a slaughtered animal, it should entice meat eaters to switch more easily without having to, you know, quote unquote, give up meat, without having to sacrifice meat. 
So where are we on the technology? I mean, of course, everyone who's in this business has a vested interest in hyping it as much as possible, saying, uh, you know, market release is just around the corner. This is how you keep the media interested. This is how you keep investors interested. This is how all new businesses work. So I don't think it's around the corner. I don't think we're all going to be eating cell-based meat in the next decade or maybe even two decades. But I do think that the industry has made with relatively little capital has made tremendous strides. You have to remember that the first peer-reviewed paper even suggesting the possibility of cellular agriculture working for food wasn't published until 2005. The first publicly released prototype, which is Mark Post's Mosa Meat Burger, which was created at Masters University, that wasn't debuted until 2013 with a price tag for one patty of over $300,000. Now costs have dropped massively. We have uh, the first commercial sale, commercial and regulated sale of cellular agriculture products in Singapore, which Eat Just are doing. So those chicken nuggets are being sold for, you know, for the equivalent price of a premium chicken product at a high-end restaurant. Whether or not that's the real price, whether or not they're making money or losing money on this chicken is a, is a different question. They might be using the sort of Uber rollout model where they're willing to take some losses on the initial rollouts. But what I'm saying is that we're 16 years from the first peer-reviewed paper talking about this even being a possibility. And we already have uh, one country where this is regulated, where it's being sold commercially. We've got ever more money pouring into the technology. And so I'm, again, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to see uh, this industry grow in leaps and bounds. And we're going to start seeing this on the market as a real product. Most of the stuff that I've been writing about, which um, I don't know how deep into the weeds you want to go on cellular agriculture or how deep the sort of how much your readers are interested. But what I think, I think the big, the bigger problem, which a number of critics have pointed out, is that in the absence of really transparent or open IP, so open intellectual property research, there's a lot of incentive for a lot of this research to be done behind closed doors and for a lot of investors, including big investors in the food system, to make a lot of money off this technology. And so we're seeing even major com meat companies like Tyson try to get in on the ground floor of some of these companies. And I think the only real solution to that is large-scale uh, public investment in research and development. And so, of course, there's precedent for this. The first Mosa Meat Burger happened at a public university in the Netherlands. It was funded, funded by Center Novum, which was a Dutch government sort of biotech incubator program. In the United States, historically, a lot of technology has been publicly funded. I mean, as The Economist, Mariana Mazzucato shows, uh, almost every component of what is now the, the ubiquitous iPhone came out of government-funded research. So there's a long history of government-subsidized research. It's just that right now, most government-funded research in ag has been completely captured by the meat industry. The government invested a lot of money through the USDA in meat science research, animal science research at land-grant universities. And I think that that model should be applied or shifted toward alternative proteins, be they plant-based or cellular agriculture. And what this would do is it would keep the IP development as public as possible. It would lower sort of entrance costs for new businesses, and it would speed up the release and perhaps improve the quality of these products. So I think there's a win-win, and there's a re there should be a real incentive for policymakers, even if they don't want to talk openly about meat reduction or meat elimination, to talk about support for STEM and support for development of alternative proteins and especially cellular agriculture. So does that mean that that the technology would be available to anyone who wanted to use it if, if it was developed with public money? 
Well, that's an open question. Uh, there's no single model for how this works. Historically, in the United States, uh, for instance, the patents, again, going back to the iPhone example, were held by the government, but were sort of bought and commercialized by public companies. But for research done at some public universities in the United States, the IP remains in public trust. So there's a possibility, for instance, for intellectual property to be held in public trust and sort of farmed out to the private sector just to commercialize products without having single companies have complete control over a given patent. So that's that's one option and one possibility. I think there's no way at this stage to have all the IP on all these products be completely public. I think we're past that. But I think there's a there's a way to both speed up the development of these products and prevent a sort of total, uh, if you will, corporate capture of this space. I think that from an animal ethics, from a public health, from an environmental perspective, I think that alternative proteins are really present a win-win-win. They really are a leaps and bounds improvement over, over conventional meat. And especially, of course, from the ethical perspective and that they virtually eliminate animals from the value chain. And so I think that if the private sector achieves this goal, then that's, hey, that's a huge win. But I think that the private sector, there are things that it's historically bad at, such as, uh, such as treatment of labor, such as using innovations to maximize social benefit. And I think the only way to reel that in is regulation and government involvement, especially in the early stages of the development of a new technology. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, but, you know, here we are in the U.S. of A., so <laughs> the hope of that seems seems slim. I have to say, I, I was in a conference a few years ago in uh, Berlin, and all of the European speakers were talking about nothing except the necessity of open source. And, and Mark Post, who founded Mosabis, was there. And and and, and I, I never heard, like, it was the first time I had heard that conversation. I mean, not that I'm really in that the, in that world, but it just does not seem to be on the radar here. And basically, it's a problem of capitalism, right? I mean, the solutions that we're putting forward today are very capitalist in nature. They're very venture capital. They're very like people who want to make a lot of money. And do you think this will just end up being, realistically, will end up being a capitalist solution to animal consumption? Well, I mean, given that given that we live under capitalism, I think inevitably it will it will end up being a capitalist solution. But I think that that's not a reason to not support its development. Uh, especially on animal ethics grounds, right? Like, yes, of, yeah, course, of course, there are, there course. are venture capitalists. There are venture capitalists who are interested in making money. Uh, Brown wants to eliminate animal agriculture. He's also going to make money. But I, I think it's I think it's naive to critique because a lot of critics of cellular agriculture and alternative proteins generally have been rolling out this critique now. Oh, like there are people in this to make money. It's like, of course, there are people in this to make money. That's the incentive <laughs> under capitalism. Yeah. I mean. Tyson and Cargill and Purdue, they're not running a philanthropic non-for-profit operations. These are multi-billion companies that make a lot of money by exploiting labor and exploiting animals. So how do you fight those companies? Well, you can push for meat reduction. You can push for policies to reduce or eliminate meat. You can push for things like taxes, sin taxes, Pigovian taxes on meat. As we said earlier in the interview, that's hopefully coming on the political agenda, but it's right now, it's definitely not changing how much meat people eat. You can champion people going vegan, which, of course, I support, but I also don't think we're going to have a collective vegan epiphany. Or you can challenge these things in the market. And if governments aren't, don't have the foresight 
to support alternative protein, then the, the development of alternative protein is extremely capital intensive. So they're going to take money from where it comes from. And if that money comes from venture capital, it's not because these companies are somehow necessarily interested in furthering some you know, cruel capitalist ideal. It's just because they need capital to do their research and push their product so they can so they can take on the Tysons and Cargills of this world in the marketplace. I mean, I can tell you an anecdote. I can't tell you who this person is because I don't think they'd want me to tell them. But I mean, I've talked to people in the cellular agriculture space who are coming out of, you know, they're coming out of graduate programs at major universities. And now they're running companies which are getting VC money. And they're saying, you know, the VC money is great, but I'd much rather be doing this research in a public university. It's just public universities and the government aren't providing the money. So it's either I take money from VC or I don't do this research and I don't make these products. And that's a situation they're in. And so I think, I think the criticism that people are making money off alternative proteins and therefore alternative proteins are somehow tainted or corrupted or ethically undesirable, I think is a very naive argument. Yeah, I have to agree. Once again, like what is good for the animals is not necessarily going to fix the world um, and is not going to be necessarily good for every other issue. But no matter who makes it, I mean, you know, Tyson is not in this business to torture animals. They just torture animals as, you know, it's just a one of the features of business, but they, they're not going to keep torturing animals if they can make more money making cell-based meats. So whatever it takes, it would be nice to see it done better. So absolutely. And I think that conversely, so I think that that's a really easy, you know, that people are in this to make money. I mean, I think that's a really facile critique, but simultaneously, I think we do need to take seriously, uh, you know, where are the inputs coming from? How are we growing the soy or the mung beans or the peas that go into these products? Who's harvesting these crops? How are they being produced? Are the people working in these facilities, are they, you know, are they protected from COVID? Are they being paid a fair wage? Are they allowed to unionize? And I think that those are really important questions that go far beyond the animal question, far beyond even just the food industry. I mean, these are basic political economic questions of how we treat labor and how we deal with the production of goods in our economy. And so I think people who care about animals who care about alternative proteins should absolutely be interested in, yeah, in all in all these broader questions, and especially the question of labor. And I think the scandal around no evil foods shows this. You can have a company that sort of seems to take all these boxes, local, small scale markets, products that are named after famous revolutionaries, but they refuse to allow their workers to unionize. And so I absolutely think that there needs to be a real push for better treatment of labor in the industry. But on the other hand, you can't just put that on the companies. That's a real regulatory issue. That's a that's a question of opposing right-to-work laws. It's a question of supporting minimum wage laws. And that goes beyond all protein. That goes to all industries. Yeah, I mean, I've often said that the animals just can't wait for us to fix capitalism completely. So you have to think of these things in, in tandem, and they're all important, but we're not going to get the animals out if we have to fix every single human problem associated with it. And since this is the first time that there is actually a possibility that, that animal rights has been anything other than a, just this kind of quixotic quest, that there is a real possibility that, that a, a serious dent could be made in animal agriculture. It would be nice to see it done perfectly, but it has to be done anyway. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I sound, I sound very callous, but the, the, the industry is going to grow and, and I'm, I can't help but be happy about that. 
No, I think I think you're absolutely right. So I think that people who are critical of the industry should really think of if they're critical of what the industry as it emerges is trying to do. So are they critical of cellular agriculture? Are they critical of plant-based products? Or do they have valid critiques that could be used to improve it? I mean, I absolutely believe that we need these products. I also absolutely believe that these companies should source their products sustainably, that they should pay their workers better, that the workers should be safe when producing these goods. And ideally, I think that they should be working on sort of like an open IP research model, which, sorry, going back to that, which in the United States, you have, I think some lawmakers are starting to see the light on this a little bit, but you've got at the very least New Harvest and the Good Food Institute, GFI, which do support open access research and do work with uh, university researchers. And so I think that model, your listeners can go to New Harvest, they can look at the New Harvest sort of strategic action plan. I think that New Harvest sort of model is really what I would see as close to an ideal for developing this technology under capitalism, but trying to temper as much as possible the avoidable harms that come with developing a new technology under capitalism. So I do want to switch the topic a little bit because you've written about so many interesting things. And one of the things that I think has always been of interest to animal advocates is the whole question of humane reforms. And you've spoken of the fact that a lot of what the animal rights movement is doing, what the animal law movement is doing, is really maybe not worth it. Uh, You've specifically mentioned cage-free egg farms, which, you know, are a major project of a lot of animal rights organizations. And I think you're referencing the huge effort and money that's gone into them. And one of the arguments in favor of these kinds of reforms are that they increase costs for the industry, thus making these new meats, uh, you know, now that these new meats actually exist, they make them more competitive. Do you find that argument at all compelling? I do. And I agree with that argument. So the way I would frame this is as follows. I don't have anything against any kind of activism that improves the lives of individual animals or saves individual animals from suffering, right? I'm not, I'm not a callous person. But I think that if you're working with limited resources, which most sort of, I don't know how to frame this, animal rights, pro-animal groups, animal defenders are working with, you have to think about how to maximize your impact. And I think maximizing impact means preventing entire industries or entire forms of suffering from happening, or in the case of meat production, increasing cost or decreasing throughput to the point, and I think, and this is the crucial point, to the point where a certain business model becomes unviable. And so this is my critique, for instance, of claiming things like bans on gestation crates and pig production or bans on battery cages and chicken production as these huge wins for the movement. I think that It's an empirical question whether or not there are wins. And I think there are wins if they increase costs or decrease throughput for uh, be it the egg industry or the pork industry as a whole. And we're not seeing that. The industry, of course, fights these laws tooth and nail. Then, of course, if they get passed, as we've seen in California, there are enforcement problems. But I think the bigger problem is that very often the industry can just sort of onboard these costs. They can bite these costs without passing many of them on to consumers. So they don't change the price. It doesn't make the business unviable for the industry, and it doesn't make the products unviable for consumers. So in the end, do these measures make, especially in this case, industrial animal farming unviable? And no, they don't. The industry can accept them. And 
And so I think that ultimately it's a question of effectiveness. And I think the flip side is if animal organizations call these measures wins, champion them as wins, sometimes go further, praise uh, particular fast food outlets or particular meat producing companies, particular processors or producers even, as being champions of animals, as working with animals, as, you know, being part of the humane economy or whatnot. I think that could actually be counterproductive because I think, and again, this is an empirical question to which I don't have an empirical answer. I think it can sort of assuage consumers. If consumers are looking for a reason to not be worried about about meat consumption, and if you have major pro-animal groups saying, well, this meat is now raised humanely, well, maybe that consumer will say, oh, then there's no more problem with meat. But there remains a huge problem with meat, right? So factory farms without gestation crates are still factory farms. Factory farms without battery cages are still factory farms. And so that has been that has been my critique. So I support anything that increases cost and decreases throughput to the point of making an industry unviable. So for instance, I'd much rather see uh, Pigovian taxes. So past policy, I'd much rather see Pigovian taxes, which would force uh, factory farms to internalize the costs of that they externalize, for instance, in the case of pollution. And that would seriously challenge an economies of scale, low margin business model that they operate on. If they can change their systems to cage uh, to cage free, and they can keep producing, and they can keep selling at economies of scale to consumers, I see those policies as as ultimately failures. And I'm also not convinced that these policies. A lot of people will say, "Well, this is incremental. Like first we'll get them to go cage free, and then we'll do other incremental challenges to the model." But how how do you do that? How do you say, "Okay, we've got this huge win," and then how do you mobilize again against the same industries? What's the next incremental change? I suppose that. Ultimately, I don't, I'm not convinced, I'm not empirically convinced that incremental challenges to animal mistreatment, especially in the case of meat production and animal source food production work. So that would be my, that would be my critique. It's always been such a huge bone of contention, so to speak, within the movement. And for that reason, it's hard to think straight about, but I, I think I come down pretty much where you all do is if it imposes costs on the industry, that's a good thing. Costs on the industry is always a good thing, particularly in this context of there are alternatives now within the market. But I'm not sure this is pushing back, but you know, the standard argument against humane reforms within the animal rights movement is always that they make people feel better about eating meat. And it's your, you're, you're saying that touting these changes could, could have that result. And I think that is possible. However, I have never seen anybody who seems to, except for vegans, who have, for whom this makes any difference at all. They know that there is an enormous amount of suffering and they do not seem to question that. So I'm not sure that that's true, but but maybe that's just because it's always been such a huge problem within the animal rights movement, people competing on this issue with a, a lot of a lot of anger. But there's a kind of related issue too, and it's not identical to this issue, of you know these minor reforms that the animal rights movement works for in factory farming and it's the kind of the bitman solution the idea that we can end factory farming of animals and return to some some kind of semblance of the good old days of small farms and my shorthand answer for that when people bring it up is usually that we would need a few more planets is, is that am i right and in any case what is the long answer how many different things are wrong with that idea well I think the I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head. I think the feasibility 
question is number one. So people like the Mark Bittmans, the Michael Pollans, the Joel Salatins of the world, um, they're basically saying that industrial meat production, of course, is awful. It's awful for all the reasons that we know about. It's awful for most of the reasons that animal rights activists talk about. And But the alternative is not going vegan. The alternative is returning to some kind of more holistic, agroecological, regenerative, whatever term you want to use, returning to that mode of rearing animals. So, of course, the question of the instrumental use of animals aside, there are two really big practical questions. Uh, the first, as uh, Matthew Hayek from NYU has written about, is that there simply aren't enough planets for that. Oh, Matthew Hayek and I came up with the same analogy. I'm so excited. <laughs> you know, great minds, great minds think alike. Yeah. So, so, so look, basically, basically, the reason we produce so much meat and we can produce so many animals is because of the efficiency, the cruel efficiency of animal production systems. So, feedlots for cattle, factory farms for pigs, factory farms for chickens, or concentrated animal feeding operations, if you don't like the term factory farm, and so. You can't replace that quantity of animals with, I'm not going to use the word humane because I don't believe in using that term to describe alternative animal or meat production systems, but with more regenerative, holistic, environmentally sustainable systems. You simply can't, you, you're talking about an orders of magnitude reduction in the necessary meat consumption. So just in the case, in the case of grazing cattle, you'd have to massively reduce the grazing cattle population in the United States if you weren't finishing them on feedlots. So that's question one is how do you get the land? How do you how do you get the land? How do you basically make this a reality? A and B, how do you convince the majority of the American public to actually buy those products, which would inherently be premium priced? And I don't think a lot of these people have an answer. I think they offer a model that they see as ideal, the sort of idealized agrarian, pastoral, yeoman farmer, Americana model. But they don't think seriously about meat reduction. And I think I would actually take these people, even if I don't ultimately agree with their project, I'd take them way more seriously if they offered a real theory of change, if they talked much more seriously about meat reduction and much more seriously against factory farms and much more seriously presented a model of how they actually see the entirety of the food system moving towards the type of food system that they advocate. And I just don't hear that. And so I think ultimately what they're doing is they're talking to a certain set of people with a certain income who can who can afford that kind of food, because there are people who can afford to feed themselves like that, but there are a vast minority of people in this country. How do you get the majority of people to stop eating the kind of meat they're eating at the quantity they're eating it and shift to that model, which, as I've, we've just talked about, can't scale? And I've never seen a convincing argument for how you get there. I totally agree with you. Years and years ago, Jasmine and I used to give speeches at VegFest and, and whatever, and I remember one of our lines from from our talk on this particular aspect was, if you want a world where the rich eat animals and the poor eat nothing, it sounds fine. And that's basically, <laughs> I think it's basically held up. It drives me crazy that this narrative keeps getting repeated, keeps getting played in the media. When you think about it for two and a half seconds, it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. And so these numbers are sort of are rough, but let's say that between, you know, 97 and 99% of animals eaten in the United States are quote unquote factory farmed. So if we were to move to that alternative model, we're talking off the bat, snap your finger, reduce meat consumption by 97 to 99%. And then we can talk about that alternative model. But if that's the quantity we're producing, then that's absolutely the case. Who's eating, who's eating that meat and feeling good about it? 
it's certainly not the 99%, right? So a 99% meat reduction means that the 99% aren't eating any meat and the 1%, the elite, are the only ones who can afford to eat it. And I think that that's, not only is it elitist, but it's a very cynical way of looking at food production. And I think we should, when we talk about quote-unquote food system change, I think we should be talking about things that don't allow people to feel better about eating less and more, you know, quote-unquote, sustainably, humanely raised animals. But I think we should be talking, when we talk about real food system change, we should be talking about more people, as many people as possible, having access to healthful food. And ideally, and I think this is where alt proteins come in, having access to animal-free options, right? I think that's, that's what matters, is much more than some kind of like idealized American pastoralism. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's just a, a nonsensical narrative as far as I'm concerned. I, there's so many other things I could talk to you about, Jan, but I have kept you a very long time already. You spend all your time thinking about all the things that I'm most interested in. It's really been fascinating. Tell people how they can find you. And I know they can follow you on Twitter because I do, and it's always very informative, but how else can people find out your, about your work? And I think I saw you say that you were working on a book. If you're if you're able to, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So if people are on Twitter, they can follow me. It's at Jan underscore Dutkovich. You can also check out my uh, my writing and my research through my website, which is janjudkovich.com. I'm working on, I don't know how much I can say about the other ones. I'm working on two books. So the first book is coming out of my dissertation research, and that's almost done. And it's a it's basically a book about how the meat industry responds to critique. So if you look at the sort of path-breaking book, Merchants of Doubt by uh, Naomi Oreskes, they write about how the fossil fuel industry sort of normalize fossil fuels and engage with critics of fossil fuels. There's a similar story to be told in tobacco. And so I'm telling that story in the case of meat. And I think that's about all the details that I'm willing to give at this point. And then the second book project that I'm working on is, uh, it's co-written with my frequent uh, co-conspirator, co-author, Gabriel Rosenberg. And it's going to be a book that addresses the last thing we talked about, which is laying out I suppose, a more progressive, egalitarian vision of the food system that doesn't rely on these sort of Michael Pollan, go small tropes. Oh, exactly. I want that book right now. Like, that's that's the book I want to read. I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you so much for sharing so many of your thoughts with us today. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. For those of you interested in the law and how it affects animals, we would like to recommend the North American Animal Law Conference in collaboration with the Canadian Animal Law Conference Scholars Track, which is going to showcase animal law and policy scholarship that is really geared toward deeper thought and consideration of, of individual topics. And this conference features keynote-style format presentations. It features prominent scholars from across North America and there's going to be an evening panel of renowned experts. It's going to be online, so all of you can try it out, see if this interests you. The speakers and panel will have ample opportunity for live, scholarly, moderated Q&A. So if this is the something that you are interested in, I think that you should really consider attending this conference. It's an initiative of the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy. 
and it's really designed to attract scholars, but it's also going to expose and inspire others to, to really think about these issues in a deep way, both in theory and practice. As I mentioned, it's a virtual event. It's going to be on Friday, October 1st. Uh, you can register for it, and that registration will also include the two-day Canadian Animal Law Conference, which I have attended in the past virtually, and which is, was a terrific, terrific conference. You can find out more information at thebrooksinstitute.org slash N-A-A-L-C hyphen 2021. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is actually from June. I missed it when it came out. I can't understand how I did that because, oh, it's kind of hilarious. This is from Eater. It's a long story. Belcampo's meat mislabeling deception is not a, quote, isolated incident. So Belcampo is apparently this fancy pants place in, in L.A. It started, I think, as a farm or what they call a farm, a 30,000-acre farm in rural Siskiyou where they raise animals, and it has now grown into a big business with many restaurants and butcher shops and and an online shopping portal and a distribution deal with Erewhon, which is apparently an upscale grocery store. You know, they allege to be, like, uh, humanely raised and, and totally sustainable, uh, $48 a pound for healthier, organic, grass-fed beef and other meats, said to come straight from the farm. Well, they had a disgruntled employee. It's never good if this is advice to business owners. If you're running a scam, don't have don't disgruntle your employees. <laughs> so this employee alleged that in uh, in the stores that they had products which he took pictures of that were not sourced from Belcampo Farms or the small list of approved partner farms, which are found on the corporate website. But we're, you know, we're being sold as such with, with this, you know, high price tag, $48 a pound. And you'll forgive me talking about meat in this disgusting way, but I'll just repeat what, what they said. The story showed um, vacuum-sealed USDA choice beef fillets, which are corn-fed, bought for $10 a pound, then sold for $47.99. National beef rib racks. I can't talking about pieces of animals like this, also corn-fed and allegedly produced at factory farms, boxes of pasture-bird chickens, which, which, who, I don't know, like they're dead. Do I call them witch or who? I don't know. Uh, they're not organic. And, and a bunch of other stuff. And they were set to be priced and labeled according to their very fancy pants, humanely raised local grass-fed criteria. And they kind of... Um, they didn't really admit to everything. They kind of admitted that that mistakes were made, you know, that sort of thing. It was it was very small. It wasn't a lot. And let's face it, they got caught. They got caught big time. But the fact is, is you can't do this. It's not a sustainable business model to uh, actually actually raise animals in this way. They can't. They they couldn't. They couldn't source it even for forty eight dollars a pound. They couldn't source enough of these, quote-unquote, humanely raised dead animals. You know, they figured, well, what the hell? Unsurprising, but still kind of like, I'm, I'm surprised and not surprised. All right. 14-year-old vegan activist removed from UN Food Systems pre-summit. Genesis Butler is just the best. This is from Plant-Based News. And by the way, Genesis and her mother are going to be on the podcast very soon. 
This was a Zoom call, and Genesis got on it. It was a UN pre-summit talk. I don't know whether it was actually organized by the UN. They're denying that it was really affiliated with the with the UN at all. And it was about dairy. It was organized by the Global Dairy Platform and was called Raising the Climate Ambition for the Global Agriculture Sector and Approach from Dairy. Genesis, the wonderful 14-year-old activist, if you're not familiar with her, you need to become familiar with her. She got on this, this Zoom call and she asked a few questions. She asked why there was not an expert on plant-based milks on the panel. She talked about the importance of encouraging nations to promote vegan dairy, since it's more sustainable than cow's milk. She says that I also let them know I'm 14 and I'm worried about my future on this planet, and this was why I was asking them to address my concerns. And what they did was they kicked her out. <laughs> oh, my God, they kicked her out of the Zoom call. Apparently, the the um, the, U- the UN, uh, the actual Food Systems Summit Secretariat at the UN, was felt pretty bad about it, even though they claim not to have been responsible for it, and and organized an Instagram live interview with Genesis to ensure that her views could be heard. So that is hilarious. The only way they can handle a 14-year-old who, who disagrees with them is to turn her Zoom off. Unbelievable. These people are unbelievable. All right. Our next story is from Meeting Place, and it's from um, Gregory Bloom, the Meat Business column. Just going to be a, sh- a quick little comment. Denver Burger Battle 2021, and the winner is, and the whole story is about some, I don't know, burger contest in in, in Denver, obviously. <laughs> but uh, towards the very end, you know, how, how great these dead animals were and how yummy it all was. One last observation, he says, not one of the contenders attempted to win the burger battle with a plant-based burger. What does that tell us? Well, the fact that you're even mentioning that tells me that you are a nervous wreck. <laughs> um, of course they didn't. Why would anybody bother to do that? The chances of the fix not being in on that are minimal. Very, very minimal. All right, finally, from the Meet Your Markets column on Meeting Place by Matt Graves, can we all just get along? All right, this is mostly about uh, this guy who is the head of sustainability at Aleph Farms, which is the the Israeli um, cell cultured meat company, which is, you know, apparently doing really well. They're the ones who brought out a steak um, a while back. Um, they're doing very well in their development. I mean, I don't, you know, they're not on the market yet, but they're they're way out there as as one of the companies in the forefront. And he's suggesting that meat uh, companies and cell-based meat companies will both be important part of the market. So, you know, screw him. I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm glad he's on the the plant, the, not the plant-based, the cell-based uh, meat side, but I don't want to hear that message at all. But I do think it's interesting that, I mean, Mac thinks it's great and he's all for it. And he thinks, which is a good thing, you know, since he usually is just promoting animals. Well, that's the, that's the reason I... I'm beating around the bush here. Um, the reason I wanted to bring it up was because of what what he calls the two sectors now. He calls the foods from Aleph the meat analog sector. All right, you know, I don't know. I call it the wrong thing all the time. I'm supposed to call it cultured meat. That's I keep telling myself that. He calls his side of, of the business the live animal meat production. Live animal meat production. Isn't it dead animal meat production? <laughs> I mean, they're not still alive when you buy them. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.